From the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Berry. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can explain why the signers of the Declaration of Independence might think that their long list of self-evident truths does not go away in the workplace. And if you like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. And if you haven't already listened to our previous episode, Private Governments, you might want to listen to that first because the episodes do sort of refer to each other a lot. So this is another one of our Frameworks episodes. Yes, I'm excited. It's the Foundational Ideals Framework. I'm very excited about foundational ideals, if you can't tell. So what are foundational ideals? Well, foundational ideals are basically a kind of catch-all for any kind of moral ideal that we would call foundational. And there's a specific thing we might mean when we say foundational. As think of like the foundation of a building or when people talk about a bedrock as being kind of the foundation, right? The idea is these are things that are at the bottom and there's nothing else sort of supporting them, right? They are the support, they are the foundation. So one way to think about this is that These are things that just matter morally, and there's no, like, explaining it further, if that makes sense. So you don't have to do a lot of, like, well, this is really important because of this, this, and this. It just is important self-evidently. Exactly. And I'm glad you used the word self-evidently because I actually think the Declaration of Independence is a very good example It's like an applied rights theory document where basically what we're seeing is an articulation of a set of foundational ideals. And I'm just going to go ahead. I know we've all heard it before, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it off here. In the declaration, that famous sentence starts, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, and that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and institute new government. And there's there's a little bit more, but that was the part I wanted to read. Notice there was a lot of rights talk. There was basically listing out what the rights are. Uh, But that first sentence, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. I want to spend some time talking about that because that's a kind of weird clause, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. It's kind of interesting to ask yourself, like, what is it for a true thing to be self-evident? Especially among philosophers and ethicists, right? Because usually you don't take things for granted, that you do a lot of work to prove things, right? Right, right, exactly. And that to to think that something is self-evident, I mean, if you really unpack it, literally what you're saying is it is evidence for itself. 
Now, what would it be for a sentence to be evident for itself? When I teach students this, I like to give them sort of mind-numbingly obvious truths, like, like take two plus two equals four. I like to ask them, I say, so consider the sentence two plus two equals four. And then I ask them, what is your evidence that that thing is true? And usually as soon as like, well, you just kind of think about it. And that's, that's sort of the idea of what a self-evident truth is, right? Like the thing's evidence for itself, because when I just utter the sentence in my head, two and two are four, it's like, aha, the light of truth is just like there, right? And I don't need an argument. I don't need anything further to justify my belief that two plus two equals four, right? Right. And so that's kind of what's going on in this first clause is they're basically asserting a set of foundational ideals. These are sort of bedrock things that's like we don't need further argument or justification. These are things that if you just reflect upon any reasonable, rational creature is going to see, yeah, this has got to be true. That's sort of the idea. In the foundational ideals category, it's a lot of rights. A lot. Anytime you've ever asserted a right to something, for the most part, people are going to think that that right is just plausible to think is probably true, that we have it, and that you might not need a ton of additional arguing for it. Now, there might be times where you think, oh, no, some rights we think we ought to have arguments for or we ought to give reasons for why we think people have those rights. But those will usually bottom out in sort of more fundamental rights. But at some point, it's going to stop. The buck is going to stop with a certain set of rights that we think eh, don't need to really argue for this. And in fact, many of the rights in the Constitution are sort of justified by the Declaration of Independence. So take something like right to free speech in the First Amendment. Now that one, you might think you need to do a little bit of arguing. Why, why should people have a right to free speech? Well, it, they have a right to free speech. It goes back to in the Declaration that to secure these rights, governments are instituted by men and they get their powers from the consent of the governed. So the idea that we need a democracy is sort of baked into the Declaration, right? How do you get consent of the governed? That is sort of a fundamental right Well, you're gonna have a democracy. What do you need for a democracy to thrive? Well, people are gonna to need to be informed. What are we gonna to need to make sure that people are maximally informed? Well, they're gonna to need to have the right to free speech. We're gonna have need to have right of freedom of the press. We're gonna to need to have the right to freedom of assembly. So those rights we had to argue for, but they kind of bottom out in some more fundamental rights. All right, so that's a lot of declaration and constitution talk, and those are really important for our lives as citizens. But why does this framework apply in the workplace? It seems like sort of larger, more overarching than something that might have to do with our day-to-day -day work lives. That's a really good question. The reason to start with the Declaration and the idea of rights in the government sector is because I think there are reasons to think that workplaces sometimes operate in ways that the signers of the Declaration of Independence would have said, well, wait a minute, you're just like, you're not that much different from a nation state, you know, back in 1700, right? These large, huge corporations. Mark Zuckerberg uh, of Facebook has even said, in many ways, Facebook is not like a company. It's like a nation state. The philosopher Liz Anderson has actually written a really interesting book called Private Governments, in which she makes the case that a lot of these large organizations 
exert an enormous amount of power over our lives and in many ways are like private governments. When you think about what the motivations are from the authors of the Declaration of Independence, what they were primarily concerned about was people who could amass an enormous amount of power over you, arbitrarily exercise that power in ways that frustrate your pursuit of happiness. That's it. Um, they were fundamentally, you know, about securing everybody's right to pursue happiness as they would define happiness, right? It's sort of a very self-defined kind of pursuit of happiness. Back in the day, it seemed that the main thing, perhaps like the only thing that could really seriously get in the way of your pursuit of happiness was a king or the government. But you didn't have these large mega corporations that also could, in many ways, get in the way of our ability to pursue happiness as we defined it. And so I think the authors of the Declaration were primarily concerned about any kind of massive power that could get in the way. And so why I think business leaders ought to take this idea of rights more seriously is roughly the idea that the founding fathers would have had that the degree to which you hold power over people will track the degree to which people think they have certain rights against certain kinds of intrusions from you. And a kind of flip of it, Spider-Man, Uncle Ben talking to Peter Parker, sort of the idea that, that with great power comes great responsibility. The idea is that the, the more power you have, the more of an obligation people are going to think you have to be judicious and responsible in the exercise of that power. And so I don't think it's beyond the pale, even if like you are the owner of the company and it is the family business, like it or not, you know you have enormous power over the people who work for you. And if you have enormous power over the people who work for you, I don't think the signers of the Declaration of Independence would have cared all that much if you were technically a state or uh, one of these large corporations, which they had never seen before in their lives, if they were to come back time travel and see us today, right? They were like, I don't, okay, fine. You're not, you're not the government, but you're this ginormous thing where you're the caller of all the shots and you can ruin the lives of lots of people just by signing, you know, one document. No, no, no. That's, that, that's, that's a kind of power that we'd be worried about. And so to that end, I do think there's a strong case to be made that business leaders ought to be sensitive to the fact that some people may feel that they have rights within the organization. And even if you don't agree, when we're thinking about reasoning through moral dilemmas and getting through moral disagreements, most of the people you work for are probably going to think they have some rights. And even if you don't agree, that's definitely part of their moral calculus. And if you're trying to reason through moral disagreements, you need to meet those reasons head on whenever you're in moral disputes. So I think it's very much worth thinking about, you know, the idea that people have rights, or at least they've got, there's a strong case to be made that they have rights. So what kind of rights do you think we might be talking about in a workplace setting? Some of the basic rights you might think, vacation time, for example, is not a privilege, but a right. Part of what people are trying to do is pursue happiness, and that's part of happiness, right? Forcing them to work in a situation where they don't ever get to do that kind of stuff breaks, respite, weekends, 
having their time be protected after hours, right? Not to sort of always be at the beck and call. So just like that, that idea of like people don't live to work, they work to live. And if you try to make their work life their only life, then you're kind of getting in the way of their pursuit of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You're, you're, you're an obstacle to that. You're getting in the way. I can think of one that we think we have in the outside world that may have a little pressure put on it by work, which is the right to privacy. I think many of us think we have the right to privacy in our lives, but that a lot of workplaces do a kind of surveillance that we wouldn't otherwise accept. So I wonder if it is actually stepping on this right that we otherwise feel like we have. Yep, absolutely. I think a lot of employees feel like their right to privacy just doesn't get checked when they walk through the door. In fact, the authors of the Constitution were were very clear about this, that the idea that the private affairs of a person are things that they should be entitled to keep private. Because keep in mind, the authors of the Declaration of Independence were very much influenced by John Locke. And John Locke, one of his great contributions was this idea of religious tolerance. Because at the time, you could get jailed just for believing the wrong, the, the religion that didn't agree with the you know local magistrate, right? Like you could go to jail for it. And being imprisoned for a mere belief that you have was was commonplace. And so it was very much this idea like, look, because men are basically awful and will basically do bad things to you for a mere belief that you have, that's not harming anybody else, right? Like just because people have a tendency to do this weird stuff to other people because of what they believe, everybody should have a right to keep any of their beliefs private. Your privacy was sort of fundamental to your pursuit of happiness because you never know what facts about you are going to make someone else not like you and make someone else want to make your life worse. And so the the right to privacy is intricately connected to the right to pursue happiness. You know, people say, oh, I don't care if, you know, I've got nothing to hide. So what do I care if the boss is reading my email? Or what if I care the government sets up surveillance outside my house, right? That's fine. If you've got nothing to hide, that's fine. But some people might have something to hide and there's nothing wrong with that thing they want to hide. They want to hide it just because other people are irrational and will treat them poorly based on this bit of information. And so Locke was like, anybody, anything wants to keep private, that's cool. They should be allowed to do it. I think a lot of people in the workplace are going to think that's right. Like there are facts about me that I just don't want known. And I don't want them known because I don't know if someone on the team is going to treat me differently or be be weird toward me because of that thing. So anything about me that I want to keep private, I should be able to. Yeah, that makes sense. There are also some rights that I wonder if they will expand because of COVID. I think we would say that people are endowed with a right to freedom of movement, that they should be able to go where they want to go. I'm wondering with a lot of more people working remotely, if there will be an increased push for this, that yes, I want to work for you, but I also want to be able to live in the place that I want to live. I think this is a good one. I I mean, I think this idea of applying the right to freedom of movement to this idea of like, Do people have a right to work from home? If working from home yields all the benefits that working in the uh, workplace would yield and it's not getting in anybody's way, like why would you force people to work in cubicles in close quarters, right? I mean, at that point, if, if productivity really is the same, for example, then you might think 
the decision to make them work in a cubicle is just kind of arbitrary, right? Like you don't you don't have any good reason. Now, admittedly, supervisors, managers, owners of companies are going to try to point to some reasons, but the point is, even if at the end of the day you think no, we should still work in the office, I think there is some kind of rational burden to respond to this idea like, well, wait a minute, but but why? Like it seems like we ought to have the right to work wherever we want. Why do we have to work here? And if you don't have something to say, I think there are going to be people in the workplace who are like, I'm sorry, but this looks like it's a it's encroaching on a right that I have. Yeah. Does it seem like new rights pop out of nowhere? I can imagine some people saying, well, since when do we have this right to work at a place, but also work from home or live wherever we want, but still like, I want to... I want to work in Wisconsin, but I want to be able to live in Tennessee. That like, since when is that a right? Do we develop new rights? Is this a way of just finding things that were always true? What is the deal with that? I think what's going on here is we can come to discover that maybe we have a right that we didn't realize we had before because we didn't realize there was a certain way in which the status quo was impeding our happiness. Or uh, we didn't realize the way in which a new thing might impede our happiness. I'll, I'll give a few examples. Earlier, when we talked about those derivative rights, like the right to freedom of the press, right to assembly, right? You might not have thought, oh, these are rights that are fundamentally baked into the fabric of the moral universe. But when you realize, wait a minute, if securing our happiness requires forming a democracy so that we can have the consent of the governed and having the consent of the governed requires an informed electorate, then we've got to have free press, free speech, free assembly, right? So it's sort of like we discover, oh, these things are essential to this fundamental right. And so now they are rights that we recognize. Yeah, I can also think of one that happened fairly recently. I think the it was the president of Nestle said something like water wasn't a human right. And that's because companies like Nestle and Coca-Cola have been going into countries and buying up or um, sometimes not even really paying for a public resource like water. And I think people, many people were horrified by this statement, partly because it seemed like you didn't have to say it before right? That you didn't have to say that water is a human right, because if we're talking about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, you can't do any of those if you're dead because of dehydration. (laughs) Or because, like, if you're dead because you haven't had access to clean water, you don't get any of those other things. And so it's so fundamental. I think people did think it was one of those self-evident ones. And it was really shocking when someone said, it's not a human right, that we don't have to ensure access to this. And so it wasn't that we suddenly developed the right to clean water. It hadn't been endangered in the same way before. Exactly. It's not that the right cropped up out of nowhere. It's just it wasn't one we were ever thinking about because we never were in a situation where suddenly this thing that's so fundamental is suddenly threatened. And so now in the workplace setting, to take the work from home issue, right? In that case, we sort of thought that it was essential to have everybody working together, right? Right. And so, of course, we were willing to sacrifice our freedoms because we thought this was sort of a necessary thing to secure everybody's happiness is for everybody to come together, work in the same place, because that's how we can, as an organization, be most productive and then continue to earn money so that we can go secure our happiness. And then what COVID-19 brought about is like, well, wait a minute, 
we're starting to learn that at least some organizations can do just fine. And so suddenly that restriction on your movement is now legitimate to call into question because before we took it for granted that that was just a necessary negative, you know, the, the hour long commute was just a necessary negative thing because us being in the same building was so vital to the health of the organization that we sacrificed that freedom in order to secure other rights or in order to secure our happiness. And what people are coming to discover is like, well, wait, may maybe we don't need to all be in the office at the same time. And if that's true, then I think it's not beyond the pale for people to say, well, wait a second, then we were giving up this freedom of movement because we thought it was necessary for this higher, greater good and to secure other rights that we think are important or secure other things that we think are important. But now we're starting to wonder, is that true? And if it's not true, then I feel like what workers are saying is, you know, the onus is on the organization to justify this restriction because it is a restriction. Yeah. Okay. So there's one other right that I think business leaders might be sort of suspicious about when it comes to employees making demands of the organization, which is a lot of employees are now demanding that they have more of a voice in the way that the organization operates. There's all these stories of employees from large companies doing open letters to get their bosses to take stands on political issues, for example. And I can imagine some business leaders like, why, like, why, should, they, why should they have a say in like those kinds of decisions of the corporation? And so I want to go back to the Declaration of Independence because the scholar Danielle Allen makes a really interesting point about it. Basically, the point that she makes is that people have been misreading the Declaration of Independence for a couple centuries now because of a typo. There's a really good video that we'll link to in the show notes. And the typo is a period that's been misplaced. The a newspaper got an advanced copy or an early copy of the Declaration, and they put a period right after that among these rights are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, period. Full stop. Full stop. And if you stop there, then you think the Declaration is like people have individual rights and government shouldn't get in the way of that kind of stuff, right? If, if you take that period out, then, then it reads that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, so this is another one of the rights, one of the self-evident truths that we hold to be self-evident, that here's another right that people have, that to secure these rights, men can institute governments and those governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that whenever a government is destructive of these ends, then we can abolish it. So the idea is like, we have these rights. And by the way, we can form governments to secure these rights. And if the government gets in the way, then we can abolish it, right? That's sort of the idea. So the Declaration of Independence is actually a very prolonged argument that not only talks about the rights that people have, but the rights that they have to place constraints on government to get in the way of those rights or get out of the way of those rights. So why am, why am I talking about this? Well, if you exert an enormous amount of power over people, and let's say that you are doing something that most of your employees thinks is fundamentally wrong and unjust, they're not going to like the idea of working for an organization that does this bad thing. And so in a way, you're forcing them to be participants in a system 
that they don't like and that a lot of them don't like. And so in a way, you, you've become destructive of their ends, right? They, they don't want to be participant to that. There's a way in which they're not even really consenting to it, right? They're basically saying, hey, we don't agree to this thing. And so there's a, there's a kind of case to be made that if businesses have any obligation whatsoever not to interfere in the pursuit of happiness of their employees because of the enormous power they exert over those employees, then you might think that when your employees do not like, and a whole bunch of them do not like a particular course of action, that you need to sit down and listen and that they may have a right to have you sit down and listen to them. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Barry. If you have a dilemma or tension that you're dealing with in the workplace, email me at katherineberry at pod.edu and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. I really hope you take Kate up on that. I also hope you can take some of what we've discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePauw University in Greencastle, Indiana. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePauw alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. Thank you.